0: Hello, and welcome to the Gumbo Ed Nurse Practitioner CE Podcast. I am your host, Samantha Genius-Arcimal, and this is Episode 25. Remember, after listening to this podcast, you can go to the websites for the American Association for Nurse Practitioners or the Journal for Nurse Practitioners, find the article, take the test, and earn your CEUs. Today's article is from the Journal for Nurse Practitioners, Volume 16, Issue 7, pages 493 to 497, July 1st, 2020. The article is titled, Pathway-Driven Management of Inflammatory Bowel Disease. It is worth one contact hour of continuing education, all of which is towards pharmacology. The authors are Dr. Deborah L. DeLeon, ACNP, Board certified, and Jessica E. Cromaldi, MSN, Certified Nurse Practitioner. I hope you enjoy the presentation. So now let's get started. Ulcerative colitis, or UC, and Crohn's disease are conditions that affect the digestive system, resulting in inflammation and pain. For this reason, they are often referred to as inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. According to the United States Department of Health and Human Services, IBD affects about 1 million people in the U.S., and approximately 30,000 people are diagnosed with the condition each year. By using evidence-based IBD pathways and shared decision-making between patients and their providers, disease management can be optimized. The American Gastroenterological Association developed the IBD care navigation to assist providers in determining the best therapies and individualizing those therapies through early risk stratification. By identifying and implementing the best therapies for IBD management, care will be guided that will lead to remission or low disease activity. Table 1 describes the unique characteristics of ulcerative colitis versus Crohn's disease. For ulcerative colitis, there is hematochezia, urgency, tenismus, and continuous pattern. For Crohn's disease, there's abdominal pain, fatigue, diarrhea, and the rectal tissue is spared and there are skipped areas. Table 2 has the risk stratification for inflammatory bowel disease. This chart will be found at gumboeducation.com forward slash IBD. The article looks first at initial therapy for low-risk patients with UC and CD. Initial therapies for the management of UC or ulcerative colitis includes corticosteroids and 5-aminosalicylic acid, or 5-ASA, derivatives. The initial management of CD includes steroids and the use of immunomodulators. These therapies can be used alone or as combination therapy and are often very effective for the induction of remission. Steroids The goal of pharmacotherapy with anti-inflammatory agents is to prevent or decrease the intensity of the inflammatory response. Inflammation of the intestinal mucosa has a key role in the development of IBD in both UC and CD. Long-term use of corticosteroids should be avoided because of their significant consequences. Long-term use has been associated with osteoporosis, cataracts, and myopathy. In addition, Their use long-term has been associated with the development of perforating complications such as abscesses and or fistulas. Tapering of steroid therapy should be performed over 60 days to prevent withdrawals or relapse. Steroids are useful in a variety of formulations such as oral, topical, and rectal for the management of IBD. Systemic steroids are not generally recommended for ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. If systemic steroids are used, they are used for the induction of remission and in the treatment of disease flares in IBD. Although the use of corticosteroids do not promote mucosal healing, they are used as a bridge for symptom management until immunomodulators and or biologic agents become effective and enable mucosal healing. In patients with moderately active ulcerative colitis, consideration should be given to the use of non-systemic corticosteroids, such as budesonide, before the use of systemic therapy. Aminosalicylates Five ASA derivatives consist of four main drugs, bolsalazide, misalamine, osalazine, and sulfasalazine. These drugs are available in oral, topical, and rectal formulations. There are special considerations. For patients with mildly active left-sided colitis, as identified on CT imaging, rectal 5-ASA enemas at a dose of at least one gram per deciliter are preferred over rectal steroids for the induction of remission. Rectal enemas at a dose of at least one gram per deciliter may also be combined with oral 5-ASAs of at least two grams per deciliter with oral 5-ASA therapy alone for remission induction. A dose of 4.8 grams per deciliter has been found to be effective for mild to moderate UC. Side effects may include headache, nausea, rash, diarrhea, pancreatitis, acute interstitial nephritis, bone marrow suppression, and hepatotoxicity. Azo compounds. Azo-bonded prodrugs of 5-ASA, for example, misalamine, sulfasalazine, bolsalazide, and osalazine, which are used in the treatment of UC, rely on colonic bacteria to cleave the azo bond and liberate the active drug in the large intestine. There are special considerations. Sulfosalazine should always be administered with folate because it may decrease how well the body absorbs folic acid. Dividing the total daily dose evenly throughout the day may improve patient adherence. 80% of patients intolerant of sulfasalazine can tolerate misalamine. Yearly labs for the evaluation of renal function should be performed. A decrease in the glomerular filtration rate corresponds with a dosage reduction of 5-ASA. On to... Immunomodulator therapy. These drugs are azathioprine, 6-morcaptopurine, and methotrexate. Immunomodulator drugs are used to affect the body's defense or the immune system. In Crohn's disease, they are used to treat these autoimmune diseases by suppressing the immune system. Immunomodulator therapy is also recommended in patients with moderate to severe UC and CD who remain symptomatic despite current or prior corticosteroid therapy. There are special considerations. Azathioprine and 6 mercaptopurine are associated with allergic reactions, pancreatitis, myelosuppression, nausea, infection, hepatotoxicity, and malignancy, especially non-melanoma skin cancer and lymphoma. Because 0.3% of the population lack thiopurine S-methyltransferase and 11% have reduced levels, thiopurine S-methyltransferase enzyme levels should be drawn on all patients before receiving azathioprine. Patients can develop bone marrow suppression, anemia, severe infections, and abnormal bleeding. The risk of hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma in young males on azathioprine, should be an additional consideration in this patient population. The major reported cases of hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma have been in patients with IBD and were adolescents and young males. There has also been reports of hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, females, and older adults receiving tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors and immunomodulators. The true incidence of hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma is unknown. Methotrexate toxicity may occur with concomitant use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, including aspirin. Taking methotrexate with food will delay its absorption. Concurrent administration with live oral vaccines may result in a decreased antibody response and an increase in adverse reactions to the vaccine. Methotrexate is considered teratogenic, and is contraindicated in pregnant women. For these reasons, young women of childbearing age will typically be prescribed azathioprine, and young men are often prescribed methotrexate. Because of the complexity of the medications and their serious adverse event profiles, some healthcare institutions restrict nurse practitioners prescribing or up titration. Let's try some questions. Question number one, a primary care nurse practitioner sees a patient in the same day clinic for abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea. The nurse practitioner refers the patient for a colonoscopy. Upon receipt of the results, it is noted that the patient has a normal appearing rectum, skipped areas, deep ulcers throughout the remaining colon except the ascending portion. The pathology has not yet resulted the nurse practitioner anticipates a diagnosis of A. Ulcerative colitis B. Inflammatory bowel disease unspecified C. Crohn's disease or D. Infectious colitis The correct answer is C. Crohn's disease. Question number two. One of the primary goals of IBD treatment is a. Making the patient feel better b. Reducing inflammation c. Using steroids as needed or d. Avoiding long-term immune suppression The correct answer is b. Reducing inflammation Question number three which of the following medications should always be administered with folate, as it may decrease how well the body absorbs folic acid? A. Sulfasalazine. B. Prednisone. C. Azathioprine. Or D. Adalimumab. The correct answer is A. Sulfasalazine. Initial therapy, moderate to high-risk ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Pharmacologic management of the moderate and high-risk patient with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease includes the use of immunomodulators and biologic agents. Although this complex therapy is often initiated by specialists in the management of IBD, it is important for providers to understand the pharmacology if they are caring for a patient receiving these medications. Biologic agents include the following drug classes, alpha-necrosis factor alpha inhibitors, alpha-4-integrin inhibitors, and interleukin-12 and interleukin-23 antagonists. The tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors. They are one, adalimumab. Two, golimumab. Three, infliximab. Four, cetolizumab pegol. Increased concentration of tumor necrosis factor alpha have been found in the fluids and tissues of patients with numerous inflammatory conditions, including ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Actions of the tumor necrosis factor alpha include the induction of pro-inflammatory cytokines, enhancement of leukocyte migration, activation of neutrophil and eosinophil activity, induction of acute phase reactants and other live proteins, and degradation of enzymes produced by synoviocytes and or chondrocytes. Before initiating anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha therapy, it is mandatory to test for acute and latent tuberculosis via skin testing or quantifuron, chest x-ray, or a combination of these diagnostics. The presence of acute or latent tuberculosis is contraindicated in initiating anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha therapy until the patient has been treated and cleared by a specialist. Patients should also be assessed for the presence of hepatitis B virus. If patients are infected with hepatitis B virus, they require monitoring and antiviral therapy concomitantly with anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha administration. Patients who are not immune to hepatitis B virus should be considered for vaccination. Careful documentation of hepatitis B vaccine testing is essential. It is important to note that 10% to 30% of patients will be primarily non-responders to anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha therapy and 23% to 46% will lose response secondary length of stay over time. Immunogenicity is the most common cause of length of stay. Immunogenicity is caused by the formation of antibodies against anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha antagonists. Secondary length of stay occurs when patients develop antibodies to the drug or clear the drug too quickly through the reticuloendothelial system. This can be addressed by increasing the dose, decreasing the interval, or changing to a different agent, such as an immunomodulator. Therapeutic drug monitoring is a process that involves measuring the drug levels and the presence of autoantibodies and comparing them to subjective and objective disease markers and basing decisions regarding medical therapy based on this information. Concomitant use of immunomodulators, corticosteroid pretreatment, early dose optimization, and regularly scheduled use of the anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha can be useful in the prevention of length of stay there are some special considerations All 3 agents Adalimumab, infliximab, certolizumab pegol have a black box warning of risks of serious infections leading to hospitalization and death including tuberculosis, bacterial sepsis and invasive fungal infections such as histoplasmosis, and other infections secondary to opportunistic pathogens. Infliximab should be discontinued if a patient develops a serious infection. Both infliximab and adalimumab carry an additional black box warning for risk of lymphoma and other malignancies with fatalities reported. There are post-marketing reports of fatal hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma in patients treated with infliximab, with the majority occurring in young adult males who had received azothioprine or 6-mercaptopurine concomitantly with infliximab at or before the diagnosis. pergo, carries the same black box warning as infliximab and adalimumab with the exception of hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma. The risk of the development of lymphoma has been considered small but measurable and often patients with more active disease are willing to accept additional risk. Adverse events associated with infliximab include infections, reactivation of hepatitis B, lymphoma, skin cancer, cervical cancer, heart failure, cardiac conditions, liver injury, blood disorder, nervous system disorders, stroke, infusion reactions during or after the infusion, lupus-like syndrome, and psoriasis. The most common side effect of infliximab, idalimumab, and sotolizumab pegol, include respiratory and sinus infections, headache, rash, coughing, and abdominal pain. Therapy with anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors should not be initiated if the patient has an active infection, clostridium difficile, or cytomegalovirus. If a patient develops active or worsening disease on adalimumab, consideration should be given to shortening the dose interval or changing medications. Adalimumab needs to be refrigerated between 2 and 8 degrees Celsius, but can be allowed to warm up before injection. Adalimumab was considered to be a painful injection with an increased risk of local reactions, but citrate has recently been removed from the formulation, making the injections less painful with less local reactions. In some instances, and in consultation with the physician, patients may be continued on infliximab during pregnancy. A discussion with the patient and provider is essential before the initiation of all anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha therapy with a thorough review of the risk versus benefit of therapy. This discussion should also be well documented. Next, on to Alpha-4-Integrin Inhibitors or Alpha-4-Beta-7-Integrin slash Alpha-4-Integrin. Natalizumab, Alpha-4-Integrin. Natalizumab is indicated for inducing and maintaining clinical response and remission in adult patients with moderately to severely active Crohn's disease with evidence of inflammation who have had an inadequate response to or are unable to tolerate conventional Crohn's disease therapies and inhibitors of anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha. Because of the risk of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, Natalizumab is only available through a restricted program. Natalizumab is getting very little use worldwide based on the obvious connection between the drug and leukoencephalopathy. Natalizumab is not approved for ulcerative colitis. Natalizumab carries a black box warning for leukoencephalopathy. Common side effects include headache, upper respiratory infections, nausea, and fatigue. Next, vedolizumab, also known as intivio. <coughs> vedolizumab is indicated for inducing and maintaining clinical response or remission, improving endoscopic appearance of the mucosa, and achieving corticosteroid-free remission in adult patients with moderately to severely active ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease who have had an inadequate response with loss response to or were intolerant to an anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha blocker or immunomodulator or had an inadequate response with, were intolerant to, or demonstrated dependence on corticosteroids. Vedolizumab binds the alpha-4-beta-7 receptor by blocking the interaction of the alpha-4-beta-7 integrin and madcam one which is a mucosal vascular adhesion cell adhesion molecule. In addition, vedolizumab inhibits the migration of memory T cells across the endothelium into inflamed gastrointestinal tissue, which is one of the contributors to chronic inflammation in IBD. There are special considerations. <laughs> Patients should be monitored for neurologic signs and symptoms which could be indicative of John Cunningham virus resulting in leukoencephalopathy, which has been observed with natalizumab. To date, no cases of leukoencephalopathy have been reported with fetalizumab. The most common side effects include nasopharyngitis, headache, arthralgia, nausea, parexia, upper respiratory infections, fatigue, cough, bronchitis, Influenza, back pain, rash, paritis, sinusitis, oropharyngeal pain, and pain in the extremities. Next, interleukin-12 and interleukin-23 antagonists. Ustekinumab. Brand name, Stellara. Interleukin-12 and interleukin-23 are other pathways that have been shown to play a role in the inflammation of Crohn's disease. Interleukin-12 and interleukin-23 are naturally occurring cytokines that are involved in processes such as natural killer cell activation and CD4 T-cell differentiation and activation. Ustekinumab is indicated for the treatment of patients with moderately to severely active Crohn's disease who have failed or were intolerant to treatment with immunomodulators or corticosteroids, but never failed a tumor necrosis factor block, or failed or were intolerant to treatment with one or more tumor necrosis factor blockers. ustekinumab was recently approved for the use of ulcerative colitis. Ustekinumab binds to interleukin-12 and interleukin-23, preventing the activation of T helper cell facilitated inflammation there are some special considerations. Serious infections have occurred with ustekinumab, and it should not be initiated during a clinically significant infection. There is a theoretical risk of infection from mycobacteria, salmonella and Bacillus Calmette-Guerin vaccinations in patients who are genetically deficient in interleukin 12 and interleukin 23. Testing should be individualized based on clinical conditions. Patients should be assessed for the presence of tuberculosis before initiating therapy. If latent tuberculosis is present, treatment for TB should be initiated before beginning ustekinumab. Ustekinumab may increase a patient's risk for malignancy. It is not known what the risk of this medication is to patients who have had a malignancy in the past. However, thus far, there has been one case of reversible posterior leukoencephalopathy syndrome, and if this is suspected, ustekinumab should be discontinued immediately. The most common side effect in patients with CD or Crohn's disease are infusion reactions, vomiting, nasal pharyngitis injection site reactions, vulvovaginal candidiasis or a mycotic infection, bronchitis, urinary tract infection, and sinusitis. On to Janus kinase inhibitor. The medication is tofacitinib, brand name Zeljans. Janus kinase inhibitors are the newest class of medications used to treat IBD. Janus kinase inhibitors suppress the immune system by blocking the Janus kinase enzyme and preventing it from activating the specific immune system cells that cause inflammation. Tofacitinib is indicated for the treatment of adult patients with moderately to severely active ulcerative colitis. Janus kinase inhibitors should not be used in combination with other biologics or immunosuppressants. Before initiating tofacitinib therapy, It is also mandatory to test for acute and latent tuberculosis as previously described with the interleukin-12 and interleukin-23 antagonists. The presence of acute or latent TB is again a contraindication to therapy until the patient has been treated and cleared by a specialist. There are special considerations. Patients with moderate to severe renal impairment and or moderate hepatic impairment should receive half of the total daily dose recommended for patients with normal renal and hepatic function. Tofacitinib has a black box warning for risk of serious infections leading to hospitalization and death, including tuberculosis, bacterial sepsis, and invasive fungal infections such as histoplasmosis and other infections secondary to opportunistic pathogens. Tofacitinib should be discontinued if a patient develops a serious infection. Tofacitinib also carries a black box warning for risk of lymphoma and other malignancies. Epstein-Barr virus associated post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder has been observed in renal transplant patients treated with tofacitinib and concomitant immunosuppressive medications. Common side effects include nasal congestion, sore throat, nasal pharyngitis, increased cholesterol levels, headache, upper respiratory tract infections, increased muscle enzyme levels, rash, diarrhea, and shingles. Recently, tofacitinib has been associated with pulmonary embolism, and patients should be monitored for this. Time for more questions. Question number 4. Systemic steroids have a role in the treatment of IBD. Steroids may be beneficial for A. Improving bone health, B. Induction of remission, C. Preventing infections, or D. Improving blood glucose. The correct answer is B. Induction of remission. Question number five. An NP is seeing a young female in the emergency room for severe fatigue associated with tachycardia, hypotension, dyspnea upon exertion, and pale skin. A CBC is pending. The nurse practitioner notes that the patient is on azathioprine and is concerned about which possible diagnosis? A. Pancreatitis, B. Allergic reaction, C. Infection, or D. Anemia. The correct answer is D, anemia. Question number six. An NP is seeing a patient in the primary care office for an initial HP to establish with the practice or the provider. The patient has ulcerative colitis and may be starting on a biologic in the near future. The nurse practitioner reviews the patient's recent lab results and is concerned about which of the following: A, hepatitis B surface antibody positive. A negative TB test? C. Hepatitis B core antibody positive? Or D. Normal chest x-ray? The answer is C. Hepatitis B core antibody positive. Question number seven. In the same patient in question number six, what should be done about the concerning test result? A. Vaccinate the patient for hepatitis B prior to starting biologics. B. Inform the gastroenterology provider that this patient can never receive a biologic medication. C. Inform the patient that they have active hepatitis B. Or D. Refer the patient to a specialist for further evaluation of hepatitis B status and treatment. The correct answer is D refer the patient to a specialist for further evaluation of hepatitis B status and treatment. Now back to the article. Biosimilars, or biologics. Initially in the management of IBD, biosimilars were introduced late in the pharmacologic process. Biosimilars are now introduced earlier because of their ability to be produced at a lower cost and evidence supporting their use early in disease management. These agents are defined as a biologic product that is highly like the reference biologic with no clinical meaningful difference in clinical safety or efficacy. The current biosimilars approved for use in IBD belong to the tumor necrosis factor alpha inhibitors, namely adalimumab and infliximab. Biologics have also become the mainstay of therapy in patients with fistulizing or perianal Crohn's disease. The side effect profile and adverse events with the biosimilars are a major consideration for these agents. The most important of these is the reported 30% primary non-responder rate. Next, preventative health measures in IBD pharmacologic management. the American Gastroenterological Association, measures for IBD remind us of the preventative measures to take with patients receiving pharmacologic therapy for the management of UC and Crohn's disease. Because anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha therapy renders the patient more vulnerable to viral and bacterial infections, testing for latent tuberculosis and assessing for hepatitis B virus before starting is recommended. Although tuberculosis testing may be performed using a skin test, it may also be performed by quantiferon, a blood test, or a chest x-ray. In IBD patients initiating therapy with anti-tumor necrosis factor, documentation for hepatitis B testing should include the following. Prior hepatitis B vaccine dates and administration, or when previously received, hepatitis B status evaluated and results interpreted within one year before receiving the first course of anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha therapy, or that the patient has a documented immunity of hepatitis B and has received a first course of anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha therapy. You can find a table of information about drug therapy at gumboeducation.com forward slash IBD. Additional preventative measures that are recommended include bone density assessment for patients receiving long-term corticosteroid therapy. Corticosteroid therapy can be decreased by prescribing anti-tumor necrosis factor L biologics, thiopurines, and immunomodulators and is recommended for a patient with IBD who has required at least 10 mg of pregnosone or equivalent for 16 weeks or longer. These agents have been documented to reduce the use of corticosteroids as well as control the diseases. Annual influenza and pneumococcal vaccines with five-year boosters are recommended for all patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease because of the patient's immunosuppressed state. All vaccines with live viruses should be avoided. Patients should be encouraged to receive these vaccines to prevent infection. Other preventative measures recommended by the American Gastroenterological Association quality measures include tobacco cessation and user screening. Preventative measures for the inpatient setting include screening for C. difficile. C. difficile testing is recommended for screening new IBD patients because symptoms disguising a disease flare of C. difficile are often difficult. Prompt testing should occur in the inpatient setting to provide early identification of C. difficile to lead to the improvement in mortality, morbidity, and long-term prognosis. IBD patients are at a threefold risk of venous thromboembolism and venous thromboembolism risk is increased during flares. Preventative measures such as anticoagulants or compression stockings can be used as prophylaxis. On to remission. (music) Response to treatment for UC and CD is based on both clinical symptom improvement and specific objective measures. Clinical targets for ulcerative colitis include resolution of rectal bleeding and return to normal bowel habits. In Crohn's disease, the clinical targets are resolution of abdominal pain and normalization of bowel habits. Biomarker targets for both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are normalization of C-reactive protein and fecal calprotectin. The Mayo endoscopic Subscore is used to evaluate ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. The score range is from 0 to 3. 0 is normal mucosa or inactive disease, and 3 is severe activity, spontaneous bleeding, and large ulcerations. The endoscopic target for ulcerative colitis is based on the male endoscopic score of 0 to 1. The absence of ulceration is the endoscopic target for Crohn's disease. Reassessment of inflammation should be performed every three months. Next, shared decision-making. Although the provider is ultimately responsible for determining the best therapeutic regimen for his or her patient, Engaging the patient in decision making can improve compliance with what can be a complex and expensive treatment regimen. The first step in this process in assessing the patient's level of understanding of his or her disease process and how best to provide him or her with information. How involved does your patient want to be in his or her care management decisions? This level of involvement can range from I trust you, the provider, to make all decisions to the patient who wants significant input into medications and treatments. It is important to remember that the average patient reads at a sixth to eighth grade level, so educational materials should be appropriate. Keep in mind cultural differences and other knowledge gaps that might exist. Remember that some patients are visual learners and would do better with videos or pictures, whereas other patients prefer reading materials that they can review on their own. Shared decision-making includes understanding the goals of care. There may be a complete misalignment between what the patient is hoping to achieve versus the provider or versus realistic goals. The patient may have different concerns related to cost or symptom management, thorough explanations related to side effects and cost or important conversations to be held. Mutually established goals enable teamwork in achieving a satisfactory outcome. On to the last set of questions. Question number eight. Recently, this medication has been associated with the development of A. Pulmonary embolus. A. Adalimumab. B. Sotolizumab Pego. C. Eustacinimab. Or D. Tofacitinib. The correct answer is D, to tilfacitinib. Question number nine. Your patient has been taking 20 milligrams of Prednisone for six months. You know she needs the following intervention. A, bone density testing. B, fasting blood glucose test. C, weight loss education. Or D, full infectious workup. The correct answer is A, bone density testing. Now for the last question, question number 10. You received a colonoscopy report for your patient with ulcerative colitis of eight years duration. The endoscopist has reported a male score of one. The nurse practitioner knows, A, the patient is in endoscopic remission or has inactive disease, B, The patient no longer needs surveillance colonoscopies. C. The patient no longer needs medication for ulcerative colitis because she has healed. Or D. The endoscopist saw areas of spontaneous bleeding and deep ulceration. The correct answer is A. This patient is in endoscopic remission or has inactive disease. Now on to the conclusion. Pharmacologic therapy for IBD includes both familiar and possibly unfamiliar newer medications for the management of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Various classifications of medications are used to relieve symptoms and to induce and maintain remission. Therapies range from the very common use of steroid therapy to the newer immunomodulators and biosimilars. Following the pathways developed by the American Gastroenterological Association and practicing the evidence-based literature for the use of the complex pharmacology for IBD provides for a consistent approach to the management of IBD. The American Gastroenterological Association pathways provides practical tools to help providers risk stratify their IBD patients. The stratification helps identify the best therapy for each patient that will lead to remission or slow disease activity. Partnering this pathway with a shared decision-making process between the patient and provider promotes a promising future for the management of patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Okay, that's it. To earn your CEUs for this podcast, go to the American Association for Nurse Practitioners website or the Journal for Nurse Practitioners, find the article, take the test, and earn your CEUs. Casey and the Crawfish, the book that I wrote that's to help Gumbo Education provide services for the community, is now on Amazon Kindle. If you're looking for CEUs, you can go to gumboeducation.com forward slash gumbo hyphen store and earn your continuing education credit for bullying and nursing, a real solution. Until next time.